Tuesday, March 14th, 1944. Dearest Kitty, it might be amusing for you to hear what we're going to eat today. The cleaning lady is working downstairs, so at the moment I'm seated at the Van Dan's oilcloth-covered table with a handkerchief sprinkled with fragrant pre-war perfume pressed to my nose and mouth. You probably don't have the faintest idea what I'm talking about, so let me begin at the beginning. The people who supply us with food coupons have been arrested, so we have just our five black market ration books, no coupons, no fats and oils. Since me and Mr. Clayman are sick again, Beb can't manage the shopping. The food is wretched, and so are we. As of tomorrow, we won't have a scrap of fat, butter, or margarine. We can't eat fried potatoes for breakfast, so we're having hot cereal instead. And because Mrs. Van Dee thinks we're starving, we bought some half and half. Lunch today consists of mashed potatoes and pickled kale. This explains the precautionary measure with the handkerchief. You won't believe how much kale can stink when it's a few years old. The kitchen smells like a mixture of spoiled plums, rotten eggs, and brine. Ugh. Just the thought of having to eat that muck makes me want to throw up. Besides that, our potatoes have contracted such strange disease that one out of every two buckets of pommes de terre winds up in the garbage. We entertain ourselves by trying to figure out which disease they've got, and we've reached the conclusion that they suffer from cancer, smallpox, and measles. Honestly, being in hiding during the fourth year of the war is no picnic. If only the whole stinking mess were over. To tell you the truth, the food won't matter so much to me if life here were more pleasant in other ways. But that's just it. This tedious existence is starting to make us all disagreeable. Here are the opinions of the five grown-ups on the present situation. Mrs. Van Dan, I'd stopped wanting to be the queen of the kitchen long ago, but sitting around doing nothing was boring. So I went back to cooking. Still, I can't help complaining. It's impossible to cook without oil, and all those disgusting smells make me sick to my stomach. Besides, what do I get in return for my efforts? Ingratitude and rude remarks. I'm always the black sheep. I get blamed for everything. What's more, it's my opinion that the war is making very little progress. The Germans will win in the end. I'm terrified that we're going to starve, and when I'm in a bad mood. I snap at everyone who comes near. Mr. Van Dam, I just smoke and smoke and smoke. Then the food, the political situation, and Curly's moods don't seem so bad. Curly's a sweetheart. If I don't have anything to smoke, I get sick. Then I need to eat meat. Life becomes unbearable. Nothing's good enough, and there's bound to be a flaming row. My Curly's an idiot. Mrs. Frank, food's not very important. But I'd love a slice of rye bread right now because I'm so hungry. If I were Mrs. Van Dam, I'd have to put a stop to Mr. Van Dam's smoking long ago. But I desperately need a cigarette now because my head's in such a whirl. The Van Dams are horrible people. The English may make a lot of mistakes, but the war is progressing. I should keep my mouth shut and be grateful I'm not in Poland. Mr. Frank, everything's fine. I don't need a thing. Stay calm. We've got plenty of time. Just give me my potatoes, and I'll be quiet. Better set aside some of my rations for bed. The political situation is improving. I'm extremely optimistic, Mr. Dusso. 
I must complete the task I've set for myself. Everything must be finished on time. The political situation is looking good. It's impossible for us to get caught. Me, me, me. Yours, Anne. Thursday, March sixteenth, nineteen forty-four. Dearest Kitty, phew, released from the gloom and doom for a few moments. All I've been hearing today is, if this and that happens, we're in trouble. And if so and so gets sick, we'll be left to fend for ourselves. And if, well, you know the rest. Or at any rate, I assume you're familiar enough with the residents of the annex to guess what they'd be talking about. The reason for all the ifs is that Mr. Kugler has been called up for a six-day work detail. Bev is down with a bad cold and will probably have to stay home tomorrow. Meme hasn't gotten over her flu, and Mr. Clayman's stomach bled so much he lost consciousness. What a tale of woe! We think Mr. Kugler should go directly to a reliable doctor for a medical certificate of ill health, which he can present to the city hall in Hilversum. The warehouse employees have been given a day off tomorrow, so Bab will be alone in the office. If Bab has to stay home, the door will remain locked, and we'll have to be as quiet as mice so the cat company won't hear us. At one o'clock, Yan will come for half an hour to check on us poor forsaken souls, like a zookeeper. This afternoon, for the first time in ages, Yan gave us some news of the outside world. You should have seen us gathered round him. He looked exactly like a print at grandmother's knee. He regaled his grateful audience with talk of what else? Food. Mrs. P, a friend of Meem's, has been cooking his meals. The day before yesterday, Yan ate carrots with green peas. Yesterday, he had the leftovers. Today, she's cooking marrow-fat peas. And tomorrow, she's planning to mash the remaining carrots with potatoes. We asked about Meep's doctor. Doctor said, "Yan, what doctor? I called him this morning and got his secretary on the line. I asked for a flu prescription and was told I could come pick it up tomorrow morning between eight and nine. If you've got a particularly bad case of flu, the doctor himself comes to the phone and says, 'Stick out your tongue and say, Ah, oh, I can hear it. Your throat's infected.'" I'll write out a prescription and you can bring it to the pharmacy. Good day, and that's that. Easy job he's got. Diagnosis by phone. But I shouldn't blame the doctors. After all, a person has only two hands, and these days there are too many patients and too few doctors. Still, we all had a good laugh at Yan's phone call. I can just imagine what a doctor's waiting room looks like these days. Doctors no longer turn up their noses at the poorer patients, but at those with minor illnesses. Hey, what are you doing here? They think. Go to the end of the line. Real patients have priority. Yours, Anne. Thursday, March sixteenth, nineteen forty-four. Dearest Kitty, the weather is gorgeous, indescribably beautiful. I'll be going up to the attic in a moment. I now know why I'm so much more restless than Peter. He has his own room, where he can work, dream, think, and sleep. I'm constantly being chased from one corner to another. I'm never alone in the room I shared with Dusong, though I long to be so much. But that's another reason I take refuge in the attic. When I'm there or with you, I can be myself, at least for a little while. Still, I don't want to moan and groan. On the contrary, I want to be brave. Thank goodness the others notice nothing of my innermost feelings, except that every day I'm growing cooler and more contemptuous of mother. Less affectionate to father and less willing to share a single thought with Margaret, I'm closed up tighter than a drum. Above all, 
I have to maintain my air of confidence. No one must know that my heart and mind are constantly at war with each other. Up to now, reason has always won the battle. But will my emotions get the upper hand? Sometimes I fear they will, but more often I actually hope they do. Oh, it's so terribly hard not to talk to Peter about these things, but I know I have to let him begin. It's so hard to act during the daytime as if everything I've said and done in my dreams had never taken place. Kitty, Anne is crazy, but then these are crazy times and even crazier circumstances. The nicest part is being able to write down all my thoughts and feelings. Otherwise, I'd absolutely suffocate. I wonder what Peter thinks about all these things. I keep thinking I'll be able to talk to him about them one day. He must have guessed something about the enemy, since he couldn't possibly love the outer end he's known so far. How could someone like Peter, who loves peace and quiet, possibly stand my bustle and noise? Will he be the first and only person to see what's beneath my granite mask? Will it take him long? Isn't there some old saying about love being akin to pity? Isn't that what's happening here as well? Because I often pity him as much as I do myself. I honestly don't know how to begin. I really don't. So how can I expect Peter to when talking is so much harder for him? If only I could write to him, then at least he'd know what I was trying to say, since it's so hard to say it out loud. Yours and Frank. Friday, March 17, 1944. My dearest darling, everything turned out all right after all. Beb just had a sore throat, not the flu, and Mr. Kugler got a medical certificate to excuse him from the work detail. The entire annex breathed a huge sigh of relief. Everything's fine here, except that Margaret and I are rather tired of our parents. Don't get me wrong. I still love father as much as ever, and Margaret loves both father and mother. But when you're as old as we are, you want to make a few decisions for yourself. Get out from under their thumb. Whenever I go upstairs, they ask what I'm going to do. They won't let me salt my food. Mother asks me every evening at eight fifteen if it isn't time for me to change into my nighty, and they have to approve every book I read. I must admit. They're not at all strict about that, and let me read nearly everything. But Margaret and I are sick and tired of having to listen to their comments and questions all day long. There's something else that displeases them. I no longer feel like giving them little kisses morning, noon, and night. All those cute nicknames seem so affected, and Father's fondness for talking about farting and going to the bathroom is disgusting. In short, I'd like nothing better than to do without their company for a while. And they don't understand that. Not that Margaret and I have ever said any of this to them. What would be the point? They wouldn't understand anyway. Margaret said last night. What really bothers me is that if you happen to put your head in your hands and sigh once or twice, they immediately ask whether you have a headache or don't feel well. For both of us, it's been quite a blow to suddenly realize that very little remains of the close and harmonious family we used to have at home. This is mostly because everything's out of kilter here. By that I mean that we're treated like children when it comes to external matters, while inwardly we're much older than other girls our age. Even though I'm only fourteen, I know what I want. I know who's right and who's wrong. I have my own opinions, ideas, and principles. And though it may sound odd coming from a teenager, I feel I'm more of a person than a child. I feel I'm completely independent of others. 
I know I'm better at debating or carrying on discussion than mother. I know I'm more objective. I don't exaggerate as much. I'm much tidier and better with my hands, and because of that, I feel that I'm superior to her in many ways. To love someone, I have to admire and respect the person, but I feel neither respect nor admiration for mother. Everything would be all right if only I had Peter, since I admire him in many ways. He's so decent and clever. Yours and Frank, Saturday, March eighteenth, nineteen forty-four. Dearest Kitty, I've told you more about myself and my feelings than I've ever told a living soul. So why shouldn't that include sex? Parents and people in general are very peculiar when it comes to sex. Instead of telling their sons and daughters everything at the age of twelve, they send the children out of the room the moment the subject arises and leave them to find out everything on their own. Later on, when parents notice that the children have somehow come by their information, they assume they know more than they actually do. So why don't they try to make amends by asking them what's what? A major stumbling block for the adults, though in my opinion it's no more than a pebble, is that they're afraid their children will no longer look upon marriage as sacred and pure once they realize that in most cases this purity is a lot of nonsense. As far as I'm concerned, it's not wrong for a man to bring a little experience to marriage. After all, it has nothing to do with the marriage itself, does it? Soon after I turned eleven, they told me about menstruation, but even then, I had no idea where the blood came from or what it was for. When I was twelve and a half, I learned some more from Jack, who wasn't as ignorant as I was. My own intuition told me what a man and a woman do when they're together. It seemed like a crazy idea at first, but when Jack confirmed it, I was proud of myself for having figured it out. It was also Jack who told me that children didn't come out of their mothers' tummies, as she put it. Where the ingredients go in is where the finished product comes out. Jack and I found out about the hymen and quite a few other details from a book on sex education. I also knew that you could keep from having children. But how that worked inside your body remained a mystery. When I came here, father told me about prostitutes, etc. But all in all, there are still unanswered questions. If mothers don't tell their children everything, they hear it in bits and pieces, and that can't be right. Even though it's Saturday, I'm not bored. That's because I've been up in the attic with Peter. I sat there dreaming with my eyes closed, and it was wonderful. Yours and from. Sunday, March nineteenth, nineteen forty-four. Dearest Kitty, yesterday was a very important day for me. After lunch, everything was as usual. At five, I put on the potatoes, and Mother gave me some black sausage to take to Peter. I didn't want to at first, but I finally went. He wouldn't accept the sausage, and I had the dreadful feeling it was still because of that argument we had about distrust. Suddenly, I couldn't bear it a moment longer, and my eyes filled with tears. Without another word, I returned the platter to mother and went to the bathroom to have a good cry. Afterward, I decided to talk things out with Peter. Before dinner, the four of us were helping him with a crossword puzzle, so I couldn't say anything. But as we were sitting down to eat, I whispered to him, "Are you going to practice your shorthand tonight, Peter?" "No," was his reply. "I'd like to talk to you later on." He agreed. After the dishes were done, I went to his room and asked if he refused the sausage because of our last quarrel. 
Luckily, that wasn't the reason. He just thought it was bad manners to seem so eager. It had been very hot downstairs, and my face was as red as a lobster. So after taking down some water for Margaret, I went back up to get a little fresh air. For the sake of appearances, I first went and stood beside the Van Dan's window before going to Peter's room. He was standing on the left side of the open window, so I went over to the right side. It's much easier to talk next to an open window in semi-darkness than in broad daylight, and I think Peter felt the same way. We told each other so much, so very much, that I can't repeat at all. But it felt good. It was the most wonderful evening I've ever had in the annex. I'll give you a brief description of the various subjects we touched on. First, we talked about the corals and how I see them in a very different light these days, and then about how we've become alienated from our parents. I told Peter about mother and father and Margaret and myself. At one point, he asked, "You always give each other a good night kiss, don't you? One, dozens of them. You don't, do you? No, I've never really kissed anyone. Not even on your birthday. Yeah, on my birthday, I have." He talked about how neither of us really trusts our parents, and how his parents love each other a great deal and wish he confided in them, but that he doesn't want to. How I try my heart out in bed, and he goes up to the loft and swears. How Margaret and I have only recently gotten to know each other, and yet still tell each other very little, since we're always together. We talk about every imaginable thing, about trust feelings in ourselves. Oh, Kitty, he was just as I thought he would be. Then we talked about the year 1942 and how different we were back then. We don't even recognize ourselves from that period. How we couldn't stand each other at first. He thought I was a noisy pest, and I quickly concluded that he was nothing special. I didn't understand why he didn't flirt with me, but now I'm glad. He also mentioned how he often used to retreat to his room. I said that my noise and exuberance and his silence were two sides of the same coin, and that I also like peace and quiet, but don't have anything for myself alone, except my diary, and that everyone would rather see the back of me, starting with Mister Dusso, and that I don't always want to sit with my parents. We discussed how glad he is that my parents have children, and how glad I am that he's here. How I now understand his need to withdraw and his relationship to his parents, and how much I'd like to help him when they argue. But you always help to me, he said. How? I asked, greatly surprised, by being cheerful. That was the nicest thing he said all evening. He also told me that he didn't mind my coming to his room the way he used to. In fact, he liked it. I also told him that all of father's and mother's pet names were meaningless. That a kiss here and there didn't automatically lead to trust. We also talked about doing things your own way. The diary, loneliness, the difference between everyone's inner and outer selves, my mask, etc. It was wonderful. He must have come to love me as a friend, and for the time being, that's enough. I'm so grateful and happy. I can't find the words. I must apologize, Kitty. Since my style is not up to my usual standard today, I've just written whatever came to my head. I have the feeling that Peter and I share a secret. Whenever he looks at me with those eyes, with that smile and that wink, it's as if a light goes on inside me. I hope things will stay like this and that we'll have many, many more happy hours together. You are grateful and happy. Monday, March twentieth, nineteen forty-four. Dearest Kitty.
This morning, Peter asked me if I'd come again one evening. He swore I wouldn't be disturbing him, and said that where there was room for one, there was room for two. I said I couldn't see him every evening, since my parents didn't think it was a good idea. But he thought I shouldn't let that bother me. So I told him I'd like to come some Saturday evening, and also asked him if he'd let me know when you could see the moon. Sure, he said. Maybe we can go downstairs and look at the moon from there. I agreed. I'm not really so scared of burglars. In the meantime, a shadow has fallen on my happiness. For a long time, I've had the feeling that Margaret likes Peter. Just how much I don't know, but the whole situation is very unpleasant. Now, every time I go see Peter, I'm hurting her without meaning to. The funny thing is that she hardly lets it show. I know I'd be insanely jealous, but Margaret just says I shouldn't feel sorry for her. I think it's so awful that you've become the odd one out. I added. I'm used to that," she replied, somewhat bitterly. "I don't dare tell Peter. Maybe later on, but he and I need to discuss so many other things first. Mother slapped me last night, which I deserved. I mustn't carry my indifference and contempt for her too far. In spite of everything, I should try once again to be friendly and keep my remarks to myself. Even Pim isn't as nice as he used to be. He's been trying not to treat me like a child, but now he's much too cold. We'll just have to see what comes of it. He's warned me that if I don't do my algebra, I won't get any tutoring after the war. I could simply wait and see what happens. But I'd like to start again, provided I get a new book. That's enough for now. I do nothing but gaze at Peter, and I'm filled to overflowing. Yours and Frank. Evidence of Margaret's goodness. I received this today, March twentieth, nineteen forty-four. Anne. Yesterday, when I said I wasn't jealous of you, I wasn't being entirely honest. The situation is this: I'm not jealous of either you or Peter. I'm just sorry I haven't found anyone willing to share my thoughts and feelings, and I'm not likely to in the near future. But that's why I wish, from the bottom of my heart, that you will both be able to place your trust in each other. You're already missing out on so much here—things other people take for granted. On the other hand, I'm certain I'd never have gotten as far with Peter, because I think I need to feel very close to a person before I could share my thoughts. I'd want to have the feeling that he understood me through and through, even if I didn't say much. For this reason, it would have to be someone I felt was intellectually superior to me, and that isn't the case with Peter. But I can imagine you're feeling close to him. So there's no need for you to reproach yourself because you think you're taking something I was entitled to. Nothing could be further from the truth. You and Peter have everything to gain by your friendship. My answer, dearest Margaret, your letter was extremely kind, but I still don't feel completely happy about the situation, and I don't think I ever will. At the moment, Peter and I don't trust each other as much as you seem to think. It's just that when you're standing beside an open window at twilight. You can say more to each other than in bright sunshine. It's also easier to whisper your feelings than to shout them from the rooftops. I think you've begun to feel a kind of sisterly affection for Peter and would like to help him just as much as I would. Perhaps you'll be able to do that someday, though that's not the kind of trust we have in mind. I believe that trust has to come from both sides. I also think that's the reason why Father and I have never really grown so close. But let's not talk about it anymore. If there's anything you still want to discuss, please write. 
because it's easier for me to say what I mean as on paper than face to face. You know how much I admire you, and only hope that some of your goodness and father's goodness will rub off on me, because in that sense, you two are a lot alike. Yours, Anne.